You're listening to Booth One. You look very relaxed today. Have you been to the uh, Russian steam room? No, I, but I try and do a schwitz every day. My wife and I have redone our house, and one of the demands I made, I had to have a steam shower, which I do. It was worthy of anything Marcus Aurelius dipped his, his toes in. It gets the wrinkles out. Sometimes I even take my clothes off. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it makes a huge difference. I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, welcoming you to another episode in the art of lively conversation. It's October, my favorite month of the year, the time for Broadway openings, playoff baseball, pumpkin spice, and college football, and to help me usher in another fall. My guest today is one of Chicago's most memorable personalities, business owner, historian, bon vivant, and generally man about town, my friend, the encyclopedic Colin Cordwell. Welcome to the show, Colin. Thank you, thank Thank you, thank you. It's wonderful <laughs> being here, too. I met- I, 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 by the way, I said thank you for all three of my personalities. Three can live as cheaply as one. Yeah. I mentioned that you are a business owner. Yes. Um, you are the proprietor and chief bottle washer at uh, one of the great English pubs in America, in my opinion, the Red Lion Pub here in Chicago at, what is it, 2446 That's Lincoln correct. Avenue? Yep. You've uh, owned that bar and run the place for how many years now? Well, generally, I include in my statements that since the good Lord was a corporal, but uh, 1984. And this was founded by your father, uh, father, John. My father, myself, and my former business partner, Joe Heinen, who was married to my sister. And when the three of us opened up, people thought we were crazy for opening up an English pub in a town full of American Irish. But to quote Stephen Leacock, the great Canadian humorist, we cast our crumbs upon the water and they came back cake. (laughs) So. <laughs> well, they certainly did. You've recently gone through a huge renovation of the place, mm-hmm. too. Um, you did the whole thing from top to bottom. Yes. Complete gut rehab. You've saved a lot of the artifacts and things. Uh, well, and added that. more. Uh, I'm still trying to get used to a level floor, uh, plumbing and electrical. Yeah, that, f- that floor in the old Red Lion was, uh, what, did it, what did it slant, north to south? Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. East to west, others, depending on where, where the prevailing winds were blowing, you know. But the, the Red Lion had surpassed the English look of loving neglect, and I just had to do something about it. It was like bartending in a Charles Dickens novel. Yeah. yeah. You didn't yeah. know when a rat was going to pop out. People yeah. say, well, what was the old place like? What was the old place like? It was cold, damp. Always cold. Yeah. Damp, moldy, smelly. Rat. Nice bathroom, though. Yeah, rat infested, but it was unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, oh, the bathroom was so it, there was not there wasn't enough room in there to cuss a cat. That's yeah. true. You had, you had to go outside to change your mind. That's, yeah. that's exactly yeah. right. It was like taking a pee on the Mackinac race. You know, you had your left foot on port wall, your right foot on starboard. And hopefully you didn't fall into the hole in front of the toilet. And hopefully the wind wasn't blowing the wrong way through yeah. the hole in the wall. Yeah. Well, you're more than just a, a barkeep. You're, well, you're a barkeep extraordinaire. People come into the Red Lion not just to enjoy the fare, including, well, scotch eggs and English mac and cheese. What, right. what is English mac and cheese? Why um, is it English? I, I, it's got it, peas in it. Our motto is none of the food's authentic. It's good. You can't make it authentic. Nobody will be able to eat it. Caracciolo once famously said, in England, there are over 60 different religious sects and only one sauce. 
<laughs> we have Protestantism down perfectly, but cooking, it's the sauce, by the way, is grease. My grandmother, rest her soul, she was, I loved her dearly. Uh, she was a walking history book. She saw Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee Parade in 1897. She remembered when the soldiers came home from the Boer War. She told me about seeing the first German Zeppelin shot down over London in 1915 when she worked on the Woolwich Arsenal. I had her house blown in twice during the Blitz. Mm. A wonderful, warm, and warmly abrasive person, but she could not cook. And she kept a pan of grease in her kitchen that went back to the Blitz. It was really a piece of magic. She could turn a fillet into a hockey puck in under 20 minutes. You know. The English have been forced to import anything that will stay down for more than 10 seconds. There's an old saying, the French live to eat and the English eat to live. It really came home every time I was visiting my grandmother. I always threw up every time I visited her. I couldn't figure out why. I finally pinpointed it to the cooking. And she had one rule of cooking. When it's brown, it's done. When it's black, it's buggered. So, <laughs> I knew I was on the right track with the Red Lion because I had an English guy send back the bangers of mash one time. He sent it back? Yeah. And I, he pushed the plate towards me. I said, I said what's the matter? It's got too much taste. It's, it's, got, it's, it's got too much flavor to it's got, it. It's got too much taste. Yeah. I said, well, I can boil the bread for you if you want. You know. Bangers and mash is very yes. uh, uh, traditional English dish of what, what pork sausage uh, yes. and mashed potatoes and like a like a, an onion gravy or something. Yeah, that's right. I, mm. did, did you know my father? I don't believe I ever knew your father. I think Betsy met my dad. Yeah, you met old hemorrhoids. You and I, yeah. you and I met after your that's father right. had passed, yeah, I think. He was a real character. He was English down to the false teeth. He was trying to explain our menu when we first opened up, and my business partner at the time, uh, Joe, said, hey, John, what's toad in the hole? Which is an English dish. Oh, also on yeah. your on your menu. Yeah. yeah. And he said, well, that's where you you turn around, t- bend over, and I kick you up the backside. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what they named the dish after. <laughs> that's yeah. Right, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Line, as I mentioned, is one of the great well, it's one of the great bars in Chicago and I think one of the great English pubs in all of America. Thank you. you get people from all over the, Everywhere. the United States and, and the world coming into your place, right? Well, when you own a bar, a pub or tavern, most people I talk people out of buying two things, guns and bars. Although I can kill more people with a bar than I can with a gun. I used to teach people how to drink. I said, you can have a drink every half hour to 45 minutes. You have, you have to give your liver a chance to filter it through. No, I never adopted this myself. You know, I was a pinup boy for modern Irish handcuffs. You know. <laughs> Irish arthritis, by the way, is when you get stiff in a different joint every night. You know. <laughs> and I've had a few, and man, these people... Yeah, I've been shaking hands with the Almighty because of that. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I've had all kinds of people through it. I mean, when you own a bar or a tavern, it's like having an Ouija board. You never know what's coming through. Uh, you have a public door. It's very similar to the guy in the Ed Sullivan show, you know, spinning 25 plates at the same time. Yeah, And you have to serve him a drink, too. Yeah, you know, it's the old Roman saying, Panama Kirkensis, give him bread and circuses, get him off the streets. That's right, bread and circuses. Nothing's changed. You look to be in pretty good shape for the shape you're in. For the shape I'm in, yes. Uh, yeah. are, you, uh, are you a runner? I ask because tomorrow is the uh, Bank of America Chicago Marathon, and I have very strong feelings about running no, for I, well, I, I, recreation. I, I'm more, I, I ascribe more to what the late English actor Robert Morley once said, uh, exercise was a shortcut to an early grave. 
I, and I also mirror that on the other side of the coin by what Mark Twain said. Whenever I felt the least bit athletic, I sat under a tree and had a cigar until the feeling went away. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so a cigar they, and a tree. Well, these are wise men. I'm not a big fan of running for recreation. I, I believe that the human uh, body was made to only run 26 miles if something is right. chasing you. You know, I actually posted something like that on Facebook. If you see me running... Get out of the way because I don't run. That means that something is <laughs> right behind me. <laughs> Something's right, right behind, right behind you. <laughs> you know? Well, people become addicted to it. There's, I, there's I, something about the, well, I don't know, endorphins or the, the chemicals that build up in your body as you're running long distances. They, they just become addicted. I wanted to let our fans and listeners know about something that I went to see earlier this week went to the Goodman Theater here in Chicago, and we saw Ivo Van Hove's production of Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge. Do you know, uh, you're familiar with A View from uh, the Bridge? I am, not for You were an actor for many years. Yes, yes. I, I was making way too much money in theater. I'm trying to get in the bar business. Yeah, so, I, think that was, yeah. I think that was a wise move. I learned all my, uh, I got all my theatrical training uh, working behind a bar. I learned movement, blocking, and forgetting all my lines working behind a bar. You learned listening, though, I, too, didn't you? Well, you have to. We're psychiatric field medics. They come in, you say, how's your day? And that's the turn that opens the hydrant. That's all you have to say. Yes. Well, we went to see a view from the bridge, and I have to say, this is a... They do great stuff there. ...seminal production. Uh, I was so immensely affected by it. I know the play pretty well. It's never been my favorite play. Mm -hmm. Certainly not my favorite Arthur Miller play either, Death of a Salesman probably being, being such. But I found such new insight in a view from the bridge for this production. It, they do it in just a blank white square with a couple of benches around the edges of it and the floor is completely white and all the actors are barefoot they're not necessarily in period costumes there's no furniture one time i think one character brings a chair on stage for <laughs> some brief moment you know that's brilliant you can do a double header waiting for godot too. <laughs> 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 waiting for godot under the bridge that's right but this production and the the acting and the design and the concept and the execution were so phenomenally good all across the board. I was on the edge of my seat, even though I know what's going to happen in the play. And sure. that's, I think, what, what makes a great production, especially of something you've seen before, mm -hmm. that you suspend your disbelief yeah. and just get ready for what the next thing is going to be without any expectations or previous knowledge of it. I love the whole thing. I loved it all up until the very, very end when it started to rain blood. Ooh, that was, a, that I, was, that was an interpretive that, uh, inclusion. That kind of blew me away. And I, I started to think how in God's name, are they doing that? How is that all coming from the ceiling and onto this white floor all over the actors? Was this a political interpretation of the last presidential election or something? Or? I, 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 it could very well have been. Oh. I don't think so. It's just an interpretation of how the story leads eventually mm -hmm. to inexplicable violence and death. Mm -hmm. If you don't know the play, you don't really see this coming, though you suspect something right. tragic is going to happen. This was very Greek tragedy-like yeah. in its design and its execution. Loved it. It's there until, I think, the 22nd of October, which is another few weeks. Do you couldn't get to the, couldn't uh, recommend it more highly. Do you get to the Goodman a lot? Quite a lot. Yeah, yeah they, they, They're so consistent. And, and Fantastic They stuff. really are. You mentioned earlier we were talking about your career as an actor. Right. 
you were also a, a bar owner during that time That's while correct. you were acting yeah. during the 80s, 90s. By 2000, you were probably out of the business. Yeah, it was about the somewhere, acting somewhere, business. Yeah, somewhere about there. I just it was very hard to run a business, and because you do something well, doesn't mean necessarily you should do it. But uh, it, I love acting. I, I love actors. I, I love the theater. And I try to give them a leg up any chance I get because I know how hard it is. There's more rejection in theater than there is in all of life. And you, if you can minimize that for people, that's great. And so, I, you know, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for people who tread the, the planks. Yeah, something you're very well known in Chicago for is donating space, especially in the old Red Lion, the that's one right. that no longer is standing, that's been remodeled. That's right. Uh, you would let theater companies utilize your upstairs space for mm-hmm. rehearsal. That's right. For free. Yeah. You, you were just generous that way. Well, my motto was do a mitzvah a day. You know, <laughs> it keeps the tax man away. Uh, uh, uh. I, as I said, you don't want people's dreams to get dashed. You really, you know, you remember what that's like. Yep. You know, we carry the child in us all through our life, and it's there at the point of our death. And you remember what it was like, you know, your sense of world of wonderment and your crushing sense of loss when something you believed in so much doesn't transpire. I'm a softie for stuff like that because I don't want to see people experience that kind of childlike sense of loss in their later years because it's basically the same feeling. We're, We're a culmination of... Every emotion we've felt since we came back into this mortal coil, and one of them is a sense of a sense of loss. Mm-hmm. You know. One particular theater company that comes to mind that you were instrumental in helping out early in their development mm-hmm. was the Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Barbara Gaines mm-hmm. um, was a longtime artistic director, still is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Barbara approached us, and uh, she explained to me her vision. And I thought she was mad. And, uh, and my father, who was mad, went along with it. And it turned out that I was the guy without the vision, and they had the vision. What was her vision? What did her she explain to you? Was, I, she said, I want to see a major Shakespearean theater company for the city of Chicago that is going to be known nationwide and worldwide. And she explained her love, her love affair with Shakespeare. And you could see the woman was, her soul was, was in, ignited by it. I wish... I had seen more, and I went along with it. I said, of course, we'll do it. I don't know how, I said, I have no idea how the hell you're going to do this. They did it. Our place was full. People were eating at tables and stuff, and actors were running back and forth. Bruce Young, who played the, uh, the black hooker in Risky Business, was the narrator in the tree. Tony Marcus was there. Jim Fitzgerald was in it. We had quite a few uh, well-known actors, stage actors, who were in that production. And a production of, what was it again? Uh, Henry V. Henry V. Uh, as we say in the Argo of the bar world, Hank the Sank. And she uh, was amazing. We had an old saying, when opportunity knocks at our door, we turn up the TV until the knocking goes away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but well, I am so proud of the fact that I, we helped... My father, I, I give the credit to it more than me. I, I, I went along for the ride. We helped her get off the ground. And she was in about six months ago, and I absolutely... She looks the same. The woman doesn't age, I swear to God. In fact, she looks she, younger. She, yeah, she almost she, doesn't age. She doesn't, it's, it's, almost, it's almost supernatural. Yeah. Well, she, she doesn't have 
teenagers, but yeah. <laughs> yes. you, you have a couple of teenage children. I have children. Two, two wonderful kids. Yeah, uh, but you know, I see why people do this earlier in life. Uh, Brian Dennehy, the um, actor, used to come into the, uh, the Red Lion. He came in one night, like five months before closing. He said, "Hey, can I get a drink?" I said, "Yeah, Brian, let me come on in and let me just lock the door so nobody bothers you." He's your typical mountainous Irishman. You look like the Aeon building going for a walk. And, and uh, fists like matured hams. And he, uh, he goes, so you got any kids? I said, yeah, Brian, I did the Irish thing. What's that? So I got married in my 40s and started my family. He goes, no, nah, if you were Irish, you would have gotten married at 60. You got a point there. And the interesting thing about having kids this late at life is that you are allowed to relive history. And in my case, I was able to redirect a lot of history and to just point out, my son is always so, a teacher of his came up to me and says, you know, your son said to me, it's just so aggravating when my father's always right. And I said, well, maybe he knows something. Maybe. I guessed what his ACT score was going to be. I said, you're going to get this. And you know what? He got that. But that's my, my psychic ability. They're very smart, very good artists. You know, artistry runs in the family, that and brave men. A college I think that you should consider strongly for your son mm-hmm. is Northern Michigan University in Marquette. And I'll okay. tell you why. Small college uh, in the Midwest has launched a program in its chemistry department that gives a new meaning to the phrase higher education. Uh, Northern Michigan University is offering a medicinal plant chemistry program. I see Effectively, where this is going. a major in marijuana <laughs> oh. <laughs> that will prepare students for careers in the burgeoning marijuana industry. It's the first degree of its kind at a four-year undergraduate college, and the school hopes to become a major pipeline for the legal marijuana business, which employs between get this, 165 to 230,000 Americans. That's about as many people as there are dental hygienists in the U.S. Uh, oh, now I want to uh, include to your audience, too, that if you qualify, you can get the Cheech and Chong grant. <laughs> you know. Well, there's two grants. There's the Cheech grant, and then there's, there's the, the Chong, Chong grant. grant, and yeah. you can get one or the other. One's got a little bit more money to it. The right. other one's mostly just free stuff. There won't be much hands-on experience in this program, however. The school will not grow marijuana, but that could change if laws around cultivation become more flexible in Michigan. So far, 12 students have enrolled at the program at NMU. This is in Marquette, which is in the Upper Peninsula. The head of the school's chemistry department said he expects the number to double or triple by next fall. Well, you know, that's an interesting way of, you know, it's like catching monkeys with peanuts. You know, you put the the jar, the monkey won't let go of the peanut. He'll he'll just drag the jar along. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We should record an episode of uh, Booth One at the Red Lion sometime. Uh, I've often wanted to do a location. Uh, We've done a couple remote broadcasts and recorded episodes, but I've never done one in a public location, which I think would be really, really fun. Who are some of the most memorable characters that you've met? over the years. You've got a lot of regulars that have come into your bar over the decades. Any one or two that come to mind yeah. that uh, yeah. you could uh, talk to us about today? Sure. It was an incredible year. It was about 19, I think it was 1992. I guess I know Captain Dale Dye, uh, who wrote the book Platoon. He played the captain in the movie. He was Spielberg's military advisor for Private Ryan. Uh, he came in 
frequently while he was filming an Oliver Stone film, and he did a private showing of Platoon Upstairs, The Red Line. Wonderful man. And about that time, I met Otto Kretschmer, the top U-boat ace in the German Navy. He was interviewed on The World at War, and uh, he was known as Silent Otto. He was personally given the Knight's Cross by Admiral Rader. He came in with nine old U-boat crew, and he was the top U-boat ace in the German Navy. They lost Kretschmer, Preen, and Shepke all in one week. Their top three U-boat captains. Kretschmer was the only one that survived. He was death charged and brought to the surface by the British on St. Patrick's Day, 1941, and he stayed in the captain's quarters, British captain's quarters on the way back to Canada, the POW camp, and the British captain said it was the best game of bridge he ever played in his life. And, and you know, in my business, you, you develop a radar for people. If somebody walks in, I can tell within the first five seconds I'm going to have problems with somebody. Or not. And, you know, they say never judge a book by its cover, but you can't help but register subconsciously human behavior, actions, a look or something like that. And when I met Kretschmer, I shook his hand. I said, this is a nice man. I mean, he fought on the other side. He was a nice man. So I did some research on him. And he used to leave supplies for the men he torpedoed. He would give uh, instructions to them how to find the closest landfall. He wouldn't leave them out in the, uh, out in the water by themselves. He was an old, old school warrior. He was a very interesting man. I didn't get a chance to talk to him a lot, but I did shake hands with him. I got his autograph. He wound up being a gross admiral in, in NATO after the war. Hmm. And I think had Rommel lived, he probably would have been a general in NATO as well. How did you develop your fondness for all things historical, especially war-related? You're, you're a walking, talking, uh, again, encyclopedia about World War II and the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Was this something that you fostered uh, as a child? Was, your, was th your father responsible for some well, of this? I, you, you, my father's family was English. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was born here. I've got my own teeth. <laughs> but I have one of those English noses you, you need a tie clip for. I have so many members of my family that shed blood for king and country. You know, my grandfather fought at Gallipoli in the first war. He was shot three times and bayoneted once and had typhus and survived. He fought in Mesopotamia, which later became Iraq. Uh, he finished the war in Palestine. He served there with one of his brothers. And two of his brothers were both killed in the same battle at Passchendaele. His youngest brother was 16. He was killed. He was decapitated by a shell. Yeah. And my grandmother had an uncle at the Siege of Ladysmith in the Boer War. Uh, he was a Scottish surgeon. Her brother served in Azerbaijan in the, in the British Army, guarding the oil fields in the yeah. First World War. And of course, my father was in the RAF. And he was uh, also a prisoner of war. Yeah, he was one of the forgers in the Great Escape. He helped dig one of the three tunnels, too. I think he helped dig Tom. It, hmm. it collapsed on him 40 feet down. He didn't want to go back down. They said, well, what can you do? He said, well, I just passed my architectural exams through the Red Cross. They said, can you print? He said, Yeah. He said, fine, we're going to put you in forgery. And it's interesting, because back in 1972, we went to England to visit my grandmother. I was a long-haired kid in high school. He said, come on, we're going down to the Imperial War Museum. There's an exhibit to the Great Escape. And we're walking past these cases with all this paraphernalia in it. He stopped and goes, good God. I said, what is it, Dad? He pointed to two objects in this glass case. He said, I did this one, and I did this one down here. He recognized two of his forgeries. In the well, were case. they like travel papers or something yeah, like that? Yeah, exactly. Was the uh, character uh, played by Donald Pleasance in the movie roughly based on a well, a conglomeration of people like you? Uh, it was. It was. Uh, yes. It was. It, it, that's probably the most accurate description I've heard. It is. It was a conglomeration of people. There were about. I think there were about six forgers. My father's one of them. My father designed the theater in the camp, and it was under his theater. They hid 90 tons of earth from Tunnel Harry. Rupert Davies, the TV, uh, English TV actor, was in prison camp with my father. 
And I think Denim Elliott was too. He was. So they had quite the acting yeah, company. Uh, you going know, on. you know who was in, uh, you know who was in uh, Prison Game with my dad was Ray Rayner from WGN. Uh, Oliver, the, Oliver um, O. Oliver and and <laughs> and uh, Dick Tracy Crime Stoppers. He was a radio operator, I believe, in B-17s, and he was shot down. He was a penguin. He snuck dirt out in his pants and he spread it around. But he and my dad met at one of these reunions uh, a number of years ago, about 50 years ago or something like that. So through all of that, you, you've <clears throat> clearly it's got a long family history for you, and you, and yeah. you developed an interest oh, uh, yeah. in, wow. in things, again, war-related. Everybody has at least one novel in them, if you look into your family. Have you, you written know? one? Not yet. I'm, it's in there. It's, it's between my ears. The, the greatest distance in the universe is from between your noggin to the pen you hold in your hand. Getting something on, staring in horror at a blank sheet of paper, and what am I going to put on it? It's one of the most difficult things a human being can endeavor, I think. You know, yeah, most writers say the hardest thing for them is actually sitting down to write. Yeah. People ask uh, writers, famous writers, not famous writers, how do, you, how do you come up with your ideas? Where do these things come from? Where, well, you know, most of them have great imaginations, and they have the ideas, what they struggle with is getting up in the morning and making yourself put them down on paper. It's so true. You know what Red, Red uh, Smith, the sports writer, said? It's easy to write. All you do is sit at a typer and open up a vein. You know. I'll tell you, one guy I had in was Christopher Hitchens. He, he sat at the end of the bar. I didn't recognize him. The woman next to him introduced me to him. It was interesting because she was kind of trying to put the full court press on him, and he was kind of unnerved by it. So he was happy to use me as a pick. You know, he's talking to me. So he and I wound up talking about First World War poetry for about an hour and a half. First World War poetry. Right. That's yeah. an obscure genre. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It became even more obscure. He and I went through a, a labyrinth of, of obscurata. He said, uh, Owen was the greatest of all the poets. And I said, yeah, but I wouldn't dismiss Isaac Rosenberg. And I'm sitting there cleaning glasses and I'm talking to him. I said, I wouldn't dismiss Isaac Rosenberg, break up day in the trenches and dead man's dump. David Jones, in parentheses, stands in its own category. We don't know whether it's a joycing stream of subconscious, whether it's a novella, a poem, or even he couldn't tell you. I said then you have the secondary and tertiary levels of poets like Francis Ledwidge, Leslie Coulson, E.A. McIntosh, who he hadn't heard of. And so at this point, he realized he'd found a diamond in the rough. He said, well, who have we had since then? You know, I could almost see a bubble over his head. Aha. And I said, I don't know, Keith Douglas? And he looked at me and goes, you know Keith Douglas? I said, well, yeah. He was tutored by Edmund Blunden, who wrote Undertones of War at Oxford uh, between the wars. He wrote for Gis My Nicht. He goes, you know that poem? So I started quoting the poem. He goes, tell me, how do you know this? And I, mm -hmm. said, I said, well, Miss, Mr. Hitchens, like Clifton Fadiman, the great editor, once said, for a man to understand a great work of literature, he has to have lived at least part of it. I said, I'm like Palavitz, the pub keeper in the novel The Good Soldier Shvake by Yaroslav Hasek who had a notoriously foul mouth, but he was very well read and was always referring people to read what Victor Hugo had to say about this thing or that thing. And so when he asked for his check, I said, no, I have it, Mr. Hitchens. He goes, oh, I was afraid of this. I said, oh, no, you have to sign a napkin to me. So he, he, signed, oh, a na he signed a napkin to me. It says, for Colin, no going to these dogs, eh? Well, thanks, Christopher Hitchens. You have that up at the bar? I have it framed at home. I, I, I had it at the bar for a while, and I'm, I've got to get a little plaque for it so people understand what the hell it is. You, you've recently <clears throat> uh, built a home. Yes. And have had the opportunity by building it that you were able to put a lot of things that you've always wanted to have inside this home. And yes. one thing you've done is you've created... Is it in the basement? Is it your library in the basement? Well, one of my libraries is in the basement, yes. 
one of the formal li- libraries is in the basement. And how many volumes would you uh, estimate you have it's in that? It's probably about 6,000. About 6,000 volumes. Yeah. Now, in the front room is my Civil War room. That's my piece de resistance. I have a, an antique portrait of Grant from 1876. I have one of Grant from 1865, and I have one of Robert E. Lee from 1870. I have one of Stonewall Jackson in a federal uniform. And I have a melodeon, which is like a harpsichord, which has been in my family since the Civil War. Mm. And, and that's a beautiful piece of furniture that's in there. And I have one wall, which is an entire oak bookcase of my collection of Civil War history and anything pertaining to the Civil War. Wow. And you have quite a number of volumes scattered around the Red Lion Pub as well. How many volumes would you say you've stored there? There are probably about 2,500. The front room is dedicated to the First War, the Great War. And the rest is dedicated to the Second World War and British history. The back bar I designed myself, and that covers the Aquitaine period to the present. Mm. Of course, I have my portrait of Dr. Johnson behind there, who, who said about writing, if you want to be a writer, write. (laughs) <laughs> You've done a lot of things in your career. We talked about your acting uh, mm-hmm. career when you were younger. If you weren't a bar owner, a proprietor, what would you have liked to have done with mm-hmm. your life? If you could go back and say, I'm going to do this. You know, one of the three points of a human soul, which is creativity, I would probably go back into theater. Really? Yeah. And I would also write. I'd be a writer. Write for the theater? Be a playwright? Um, I'd do that, but I'd also write histories. Postgraduate work is actually a self-imposed form of slavery. I tried it twice. It's interesting because I loved a lot of the professors I had. They were wonderful guys. But many people I make in academia, just there are a couple of pieces missing. They understand things. But, you know, wisdom doesn't come about through education or experience. It comes about through a marriage of the two. And I wish people understood that more. I've had the great fortune or misfortune of being in the bar business 40 years legally. So what happens is you're given the narrator's point of view of life. And you see how life unfolds and what is important and how we get to certain avenues. The experience I got in the bar business was unlike any other experience. And, mm. You know, the people I've met, the aggravations I've had. Owning a bar is like owning a ship. It's like running a ship, uh, exactly like running a ship. The detail will kill you. From bow to stern, there's always something to do, always something to batten down, always something to clean, uh, there's always something to, t- to attend to so you don't sink. You know, there's a zen to it. You're generally exactly where you should be at this moment. Although we, we talked about it before, uh, Gary, a lot of people just exist in life. Your question is very pertinent. I would uh, ask it to anybody. I, I, yeah. What would you like to do? What would, yeah. you, what would you prefer doing? Yeah. Well, I originally wanted to be a cartographer. Well, why didn't you do that? Well, I wound up in finance. Oh. My dad, you know, I spent three and a half years in a, in a German POW camp, and he said, you'd be amazed how many people live in invisible prison camps. I said, elaborate. He said, well... They live in these little suburbs. They get up in the morning. They have their breakfast. They get in the car. They drive out of the garage. They go down the same road, down the same highway, come into the city, park in the same garage, go up to their office, come down, have lunch in the same place, go back up, finish their daily work, come down, get in the car, and drive back down the same highway. And they do that for years and years, and their horizons don't go beyond that. That's kind of a pessimistic point of view. You know, I've had a conveyor belt of humanity go past me for 40 years. People come into my place because it's different. It wakens something in them. It's true. It, it's, it, walking it's, into the red line is like walking into no other bar I've ever been in. The atmosphere, the feel, 
just something kind of palpable in the in the air. Right. Um, something it, some, something which tantalizes us. Mm. If you don't think you have imagination, you'll find out you do have imagination coming in there. I always leave the Red Lion feeling smarter than I did when I walked in. Well, you're a smart guy. Somehow, I always acquire some knowledge that I didn't have when I walked in off the sidewalk, either from you, from another bar patron, from something you're showing on the TV oh, yeah. screen, some documentary or some movie that I haven't seen or I've seen, but I'm seeing it in a whole different light because yeah. you're narrating it as it goes on. Yeah. It's quite the experience at the Red Line. It's almost like going to school in yeah. a way. I, I feel honored having you say that because I feel like I failed so miserably in school. You know, I crammed four years of college into six. I majored in history running out of gas at Foster and the Lake. And, and I went to a phenomenal private school and I did just at average there. And you can take small solace in the, in the old maxim that the A's teach and the B's work for the C's. Grant was a C student. Kennedy was a C student. A lot of scions of industry were C students. Is the Red Lion haunted? It is. Like a lot of bars in Chicago, what sort of evidence do you have of the haunting of the Red Lion? Well, the interesting thing was the old building was very haunted. The old building was built in 1881, and it was built before it was part of Chicago. Chicago ended at Fullerton, and we're about three-quarters of a block north of there. That was the township of Lakeview. Everything north of Fullerton was incorporated in Chicago in 1889. My building was built in 1881. It was a classic frame building. that uh, had the merchant store on the first floor, and the family lived above it. It was just a little box. It should, probably should have been torn down during the Second World War. And I found out that the guy I bought it from knew about this. He never told me. I met three people who knew the former owner. He said, oh, yeah, I used to have referred to his invisible guest all the time. I discovered it, or it discovered me, one Sunday. I heard somebody walking around upstairs. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that place. It was so thin. I ran upstairs, and I, there was nobody up there. And then you would hear furniture moving around upstairs, and there was no one up there. You know, my mom was in the back one day, and she heard a voice behind her. It was like 9 in the morning. She said, oh, there you are. We were wondering where you were. Good morning. My mom said, good morning. I'll be right with you. And she turned around. There was nobody there. Did this sound like a, a female voice? Or it sounded a like voice? a male voice. Mm. But there was a female there. Back in 91, uh, I was working one Saturday. I had a, wo a woman came in with her husband, and she wanted to see the upstairs. So I showed her the upstairs. And she started crying. I said, what's the matter? She goes, well, this is like a trip down memory lane for me. My aunt lived up here for years. My cousin died up here. And I pointed to the spot. I said, she died right over there, didn't she? She said, how'd you know? I said, that's where the cold spot develops. And there's an area of that room where my father can't sit. He, he faints. My father was very, he had psychic ability. He was very sensitive. He used to be able to see auras around guys during the war. He could tell who wouldn't come back, and they wouldn't come back. And one night he didn't see it, and he knew it settled on him, so he paid off all of his bills, wrote letters home to his family. He was shot down on the next mission. He was almost killed. It was a POW for three and a half years. But getting back to the ghost of the lion, I wondered when I tore this place down, would it stick around? And Dan, if it didn't. It's made the move. Oh, it should be happy. I gave it a nice warm building. <laughs> on. And uh, I think it was the spring before I reopened. I came in one Saturday, and the electrician was working on something. And a Polish guy comes up, and he goes, it's true about ghosts? I said, yeah. Well, he goes, yeah, I'm working here by myself. Uh, the here person's walking up and downstairs, and I'm platform. I said, come down. Nobody allowed upstairs. No answer. I go upstairs. There's no one there. I come downstairs. I pack my sheet. I leave. I not come back. <laughs> not myself. 
<laughs> and about six months ago, I was watching a movie late at night, and uh, it was about 3.30 in the morning. I was the only one. It's in my, the bar. I'm the only one in there. I get up after the movie, and the chair next to me moves towards me. I'm so used to it. It's like having a bar kid. I, I just turned to the chair and said, did you enjoy the movie as well? <laughs> one night, I heard somebody playing with the silverware in the kitchen. It was about four in the morning. I was watching a movie. Somebody's picking up the silverware and dropping it in the drawers, except the lights were out. So I picked up my fruit knife, which is about nine inches long. I went back there ready to shiv somebody, and I turned on the light, and it was just as if somebody cut the noise with a knife. Ooh, I'm all chilled. <laughs> just remember what H.P. Lovecraft once said, just because we don't believe something doesn't exist doesn't mean it doesn't exist. My grandmother said, they're none so deaf as those who won't listen, and they're none so blind as those who won't see. Hans Holzer, the famous ghost hunter, said hauntings are tied to the property. They're not tied to the building. They're tied to the actual property. And I believe it. You're immensely well-read, as our listeners can probably tell by now. If you could have any book memorized from cover to cover, and I'm sure you've memorized a lot of portions of a lot of books, but if you could have one book memorized completely, what would it be and why? I would have to, I would have to say Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. And well, why? Because it's an archetype for civilizations. We live in civilizations. And they rise and they fall. Why? Well, the patterns are always there. The reasons might change a little bit, but the patterns are always there. And Rome is a good example. We still live with the remnants of the Roman Empire. There are only three straight roads in England, and they're all 2,000 years old. Two run north-south, one runs east-west. The way we lay foundations for piers is the way the Romans did it. The aqueducts are still there. I've seen them in Spain that they built over 2,000 years ago. That's a great answer. I'm sure you've memorized portions of that book already because you, so, you have that kind of mind. Well, I'm an excellent driver, too. <laughs> did uh, your children grow up with Harry Potter? They grew up with Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle? Yeah, Dr. Doolittle, written by Hugh Lofting. You know where he wrote that? No. He wrote, he wrote that in the trenches in the First War. And uh, you read that to your kids? Yep, I read Dr. Doolittle. Well, there's a huge, long generation of people who grew up with the Harry Potter stories, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're quite good. I've, yes. read, I've read them yeah. all. I wanted to uh, just briefly touch on this report that I read the other day of the new Harry Potter Broadway show, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which has been playing in the West End now for sure. quite some time, and uh, is a huge, huge hit. Well, it's about to make a profound and lasting uh, change uh, to the commercial theater industry on this side of the Atlantic mm. when it opens in early 2018. Well, last week, anyone hoping to purchase a ticket to the J.K. Rowling extravaganza in New York first had to get this. They had to obtain a Ticketmaster access code that would qualify them as a verified fan for a chance to buy one of those precious tickets. This sounds like cultism to me. It, it does. <laughs> the Cursed Child Code is designed to ensure that only actual people, this is a, uh, an attempt to counteract the, the bot system where electronically ticket brokers and scalpers would be buying tickets quickly online sure. and, and, and snatch them all up and then sell them for extraordinarily profit-making amounts to the point where the public couldn't get access to actually any good seats. The code is designed to ensure that only actual people intending to see the show have access to the inventory 
inventory, which goes on sale you know, in a couple of weeks here. You are not guaranteed a ticket if you get a code, but this additional step means Ticketmaster and its computers get to figure out who you are before it sends you a ticket. I'm going to leave your audience with three books that I want them to read to counter this kind of thing. One is The Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay, 1854. It's about manias, tulip mania, haunted houses, alchemy, the Mississippi land scheme, those kinds of things. The other one is Anthony Storr's Feet of Clay about gurus and how gurus come into being. The third is Eric Hoffer's The True Believer. Eric Hoffer is a longshoreman. He was also a philosopher, self-taught man. And he talks about who the true believer is. There are personalities out there who will find a cause to die for. And we see that all the time. Those are three good books I leave your audience with to combat this falling into this kind of satrap. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's going to allow Ticketmaster and the producers to obtain your personal information, which it will have at its disposal or their disposal, well, forever. Okay, then I want them to also go to Barnes & Noble and get The Prisoner with Patrick McGowan. And I want them to watch this. Yes. I am not a number. I am a man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great series. Do you show that in the bar sometimes? Uh, no, I don't. But I'm, I'm going to get it. And I'm going to show it. Because it. that's a great allegory. Yeah, I, th I think it would be <clears throat> very entertaining for your patrons. Absolutely it is. Yeah. We uh, generally end our episodes, Colin, with a segment that we call The Kiss of Death. Does it include Al Pacino? Um, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, no. <laughs> I already gave Fredo. You, you broke my heart, Colin. You, you, bro you broke my heart. <laughs> it's a look at uh, a profile of someone who has recently passed. They could be famous. They could be not famous. I'm going to give you a big hint. That's the hint of who we're going to speak about today. We're going to talk about Arthur Janoff. Oh. Arthur Janoff, uh, a California psychotherapist, variously called a messiah and a mountebank for his development of primal scream therapy. Wilhelm Reich actually went to prison for some of his practices. Why? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's a treatment he maintained could cure ailments from depression and alcoholism to ulcers, epilepsy, and asthma and homosexuality, not to mention world peace. Dr. Janoff conceived primal therapy after an epiphany in the late 1960s. By the way, this is uh, excerpted from the obituary in the New York Times by uh, our favorite obituary writer, Margalit Fox. Oh, who she's fantastic. On the show. A, a buddy of mine writes for them, too, uh, Bruce Weber. You should see the documentary called Obit, by the way, which is about the obituary, I, which is about the obituary writers at the New York I Times. I think it's the most interesting part of the paper. <laughs> I, mean, no. I was going to say. I turned to it first. Well, Dr. Janoff, he introduced uh, the primal scream therapy to the world in his first book, The Primal Scream, in 1970. Primal, I remember that. Primal therapy became a touchstone of 70s culture, especially after it drew a stream of luminary devotees to the Los Angeles treatment center called the Primal Institute. Were these luminaries actors? John Lennon, Yoko Ono, oh, James I, Earl Jones. I rest my case. And the pianist Roger Williams, in fact. The therapy's premise was simple. All adult neurosis, and uh, Dr. Janoff cast a very wide net when he was mentioning what neurosis could be, stemmed from repressed infant and early childhood trauma at the hands of one's parents. 
This is like a, a, a psychoanalytical Goodrich retreading of, of Freud. You, you know? aren't kidding. He called the uh, trauma primal pain, and it was manifest in a cornucopia of ills that could include a variety of mood disorders as well as heart disease, high blood pressure, ulcerative colitis, drug addiction, and stuttering. Arthur Janoff was born in Los Angeles in 1924. By his own account, he grew up poor and bellicose. After Navy service, he entered UCLA, from which he earned a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's in psychiatric social work. My mother had a history of psychological analysis, Dr. Janoff told the Chicago Tribune in 1983. He was drawn to the field, he said, to try to cure my mother, you see, so she'd take care of me and get sane. What's screaming at me? is the Yiddish word zugablozana, uh, which means left alone too long as a child. Yes, yeah. he may very well have been. He spent nearly 20 years providing conventional psychotherapy. Then one day, and here's the big epiphany, one day in the late 1960s came the experience that forever transformed his professional life. A patient... Hold on to your tuchus for this one. A patient told him about a performance artist he had seen in London who took the stage wearing a diaper and proceeded to drink milk from a bottle, cry, Mommy, Daddy, and in cathartic culmination, wretch. I have the same reaction every time I see a performance artist, period. Oh, well, you know, it's like Al Cap said about modern art. It's the selling of the untalented by the unprincipled to the completely bewildered. <laughs> Inspired by this story, Dr. Janoff asked his patient to cry out for his own parents. Well, the patient demurred at first, as any sane patient would do. But before long, he was writhing on the floor and calling for them. Finally, he released a piercing, death-like scream that rattled the walls of the office. All he could say afterwards was, I made it. I don't know what, but I can finally feel... After encouraging another patient to cry out for his mother and father and watching a similar scene unfold, he began to develop his ideas about primal pain. Dr. Janoff maintained that the way to relieve primal pain and cure its associated ills was to relive it via primal therapy. He equipped his therapy chambers, and I think that you should maybe redesign one of your rooms at the Red Lion like this. He equipped his therapy chambers with an array of nursery props, teddy bears, cribs, playpens, dolls, football helmets, baby rattles, security blankets, all to help adults turn back the clock. The primal scream that could result from these sessions and he describes it as uh, a sound you might hear from a person about to be murdered, was not the objective of the therapy per se. It was rather a sonic barometer of its liberating effect. Well, such behavior quickly came to be called having a primal or primaling. So a new noun and verb were deposited into the Oxford English Dictionary because of this. Primal therapy was in many ways a piece of its time. The quest for happiness amid post-war suburbia had already spawned Dianetics, the metaphysical movement first propounded in 1950 by L. Ron Hubbard, mm -hmm. uh, who four years later rebranded it as Scientology. Yeah, but he used to write si uh, science fiction, too. He did. Yes. So, duh. Yeah. <laughs> Janoff's primal therapy is a classic instance of being the right charismatic therapist at the right time, sort of the zeitgeist of the 1970s. <laughs> Psychologists questioned Janoff's assertions from the beginning. They cited, among other issues, the unverifiability of its central claim of the existence of primal pain and the lack of independent controlled studies. But the rhapsodic public endorsement of Mr. Lennon, who with his wife Yoko underwent primal therapy
therapy caused the primal scream to be heard around the world. Mr. Lennon's album, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band, was by his own account a reflection of that therapy. It included anguished, you probably know this, half-sung, half-screamed songs like Mother. Mother, you had me, but I never had you. I wanted you. You didn't want me. You know. And I, and my mummy's dead was another. Song I have a on the theory album. about John Lennon's music too. I think he was slowly being bored to death by Yoko Ono. I think they changed the speed on that song. Oh Yoko, have you ever read her poetry? I saw a rock. I put it on my eye. Then I felt a rock on my eye. <laughs> Orgasm. The real speed of the song was Oh Yoko, Oh Yoko. <laughs> In later books, Dr. Janoff extended the time frame for repressed trauma backward to include the baby's arduous passage out of the womb at birth and psychic trauma in utero. You know, when I called you the other day to talk about what we were going to do on Mm -hmm. the episode today, you said, "Uh, I I got your voice message. Sorry, I was in therapy. Yes. Clearly, it's not primal scream therapy. No, I told you. I've spent 30 years, and this guy is labored valiantly trying to convince me that a large nose is not a social setback. (laughs) I'm donating it. Actually, I've written in my will. I'm donating it to Epcot Center when I die. They're going to give tours through it. They might have to build an extension on uh, Epcot. They do. It could definitely be put on the Golden Gate Bridge, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, I I take small solace what uh, Napoleon once said. Whenever I needed heavy head work done, I always got a man with a long nose. Although primal therapy has not, uh, as Dr. Janoff widely predicted, rendered other forms of psychotherapy obsolete, thank God, it has managed to outlive the 70s by a considerable margin. But today it's both a discredited theory and treatment in mental health. But boy, it was popular for a long, long time. I remember that. And again, you have to read up on gurus. Mention that book once again. Feet of Clay by Anthony Storr. It comes down to this. You spend the second half of your life getting over the first half of your life. One, you're not going to get back to your parents. How are you going to get back at somebody who lived 50 years ago? Two, the word forgive comes from the Greek to let go. Live today. Screw yesterday. It's Mm. gone. And nostalgia is the exact remembrance of that which never happened. Well, Colin, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and your insights and your knowledge and your vast landscape of things that you've heard and that you know about and people that you've spoken with and people you've met uh, have been a great contribution to uh, Booth One today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I loved being here. Loved it. I hope you loved it half as much as I love being at the Red Lion. If you like what you hear on Booth One, uh, you can support our efforts in bringing you the finest in the art of lively conversation and scintillating guests by going to our website at www.booth-one.com and click on the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible. Any contribution would be greatly appreciated, of course. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. For Booth One and my guest, Colin Cordwell, this is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening. Keep listening.